Shalom Chaverim. In this week's Parsha, Parshat Vayetze, as stories of deception and deceit follow Yaakov around like an unwanted stray dog, I want to compare Yaakov's deception of his father Yitzchak to get the brachot with Leah's deception of Yaakov on the night of their wedding. On the face of it, both these two deceptions seem very similar. They're both matters of close familial intrigue where one person pretends to be another in order to successfully achieve their aim. And yet it seems that Hashem disapproves of Yaakov's actions while giving his rubber stamp to Leah's. While Yaakov is certainly not punished immediately for his deceit of his father, it seems that the whole Jewish people is held to account for his actions many years later. When Esav discovers that he's been tricked out of the brachot, the verse says, that Esav cried a very deep and bitter cry. This verse is paralleled in a most surprising way by a verse in Megillat Esther. When Mordechai discovers Haman's plan to destroy the Jewish people, the verse says, He cried a deep and bitter cry. The Midrash suggests that this parallel language is there to hint to us that Haman's attempt to destroy the Jewish people in Shushan Abira is indeed a punishment for Yaakov's deed many years earlier. In contrast, according to a highly original interpretation of a verse by Orachayim HaKadosh, it seems that Hashem actually approves of Leah tricking Yaakov into marrying her before Rachel. When the Torah wants to explain why Hashem allowed Leah to give birth before Rachel, it gives the following justification. Hashem saw that Leah was hated, and so he opened her womb. It seems that Hashem in his great compassion saw Leah and her status as the unwanted or less wanted wife, and in order to allow her to find favour in her husband's eyes, gave her children before her sister. The Orachayim, however, suggests a totally different interpretation of this verse. He's building off a famous Midrash, which is trying to explain what the Torah means when it says, Ve'ne Leah Rakot, her eyes were soft. The Midrash says that everyone looked at Yitzchak and Rivka's family and said, Oh look, they've got two boys. And they looked at Lavan's family and they said, Oh look, they've got two girls. Why doesn't the elder marry the elder and the younger marry the younger? Which would have made Leah designated for Esav. Leah didn't want this. She didn't want to be married to a Russia. And she cried and she cried until her eyes became soft. Against this background understanding that Leah was designated in the eyes of everyone for Esav, the Orachim explains that Snua doesn't mean that she was hated. It means that she was designated for Esav, who is the Sanu, the hated one, as according to the verse in Malachi, Ve'et Esav Saneti. But why would Leah's designation as the potentially appropriate spouse for Esav, the hated one, be a good justification for her giving birth to the Yaakov's first children? Says the Orachayim, Leah's giving birth is exactly coming to dispel the idea that she was designated to Esav. It comes to show that she was an appropriate wife for Yaakov all along, despite what other people were saying. In other words, Leah is not only not punished for her deception of Yaakov, but she's rewarded with a sign from Hashem that the marriage she has achieved is indeed a good and worthy match. And so now we're left with a very serious question. How can it be that Yaakov's deception of his father is met with punishment and disapproval, and yet Leah's deception of Yaakov receives Hashem's rubber stamp?
What could possibly be the difference between them? The answer is, I don't really know, but I'd like to suggest one possible direction for an answer. When we begin to compare Yaakov and Leah's actions, both in terms of their authenticity, how well do they understand themselves? How developed is their own sense of self-identity? And also in terms of their moral autonomy, what level of responsibility do they take for their individual course of actions? We begin to see greatly contrasting pictures. It's clear that when Yaakov deceives his father to get the brachot that are due to Esav, he's not acting out of his own understanding of what course of action needs to be taken in this situation. He's acting out his mother's plan to bring her prophetic vision that the elder will serve the younger to fruition. It's her plan for how to make that happen. She gets the food ready. She gets the clothes ready and makes sure that everything goes according to plan. The text hints to Yaakov's lack of identification with his mother's plan in many, many ways. One of the most delicious textual subtleties is Yaakov's choice of words when Rivka suggests to him her plan for deception. Yaakov is worried that Yitzchak will feel him and discover that he's not hairy like his brother Esav. And when he suggests this to Rivka, he says, In scriptural Hebrew, if someone wants to say they're worried that something will happen because it will be a bad thing, they should use the word pen, lest this happen to me. But Yaakov says, Ulai, maybe, perhaps reflecting his deep, deep uh, wish that he will actually be discovered and his anxiousness and discomfort at participating in the deception. And yet it seems that Yaakov doesn't have enough moral autonomy to resist his mother Rivka's forceful plan. It's possible that this stems from his lack of differentiated self-identity from his mother, such that when Rivka says, don't worry, if your father curses you, that curse will be upon me and not you, Yaakov is able to accept that. Can anyone actually believe that the person who will be cursed for a certain transgression is anyone other than the agent who performs it? And so, despite Yaakov's vague sense that something is not right with his mother's plan, and the fact that it's not his vision of how things should be played out, Yaakov goes along with the deception. In contrast, when Leah plays her role in deceiving Yaakov on the night of the wedding, the Torah doesn't tell us anything about the dynamics between Leah and Lavan in the lead-up to the event. Now, it could just be that women in those days had basically no choice but to participate in any plans that their husbands or their fathers had for them. But it could also be that the Torah doesn't tell us anything about any discussions between Leah and Lavan because there weren't any. Unlike Yaakov, who had some vague protestations but wasn't quite sure of them, Leah is a full and willing participant in the planned deception. We've already mentioned the Midrashi explanation of Leah's soft eyes, that the common perception that she was designated to be married to Asaph led to prolonged and sustained bouts of weeping and crying. Although it's tempting to explain Leia's tears in the Midrash are stemming from her sadness in her resignation to her fate. I'd like to suggest they actually stem from her protest against her fate, from her sense of injustice that this is what would be thrust upon her, and from her determination to carve out her own destiny. In the course of the Pasha, we certainly come to know Leia as someone with great clarity of vision, someone who's very focused on the essence of life, and who is not drawn away from that easily by external distractions. 
For example, in the story regarding the Dudaim, these mysterious plants which Leah's son Reuven collects from the field and which Rachel really desires, it's instantly apparent to Leah what she wants in return from Rachel. And what is it? The chance to have another child with Yaakov and to establish another one of the tribes of Israel. So where is it that Leah gets this clarity of vision from? Although Leah's soft eyes may have been the result of her crying, the effect of those soft eyes may have been to direct Leah into an internal world, a world based around perception rather than vision, a world of deep introspection and meditation, a world based on the essence and not the external. The Tanakh is just full of examples in which people's level of perception doesn't live up to their 2020 vision. Cases where appearances deceive. Yehuda assumes Tamar is a prostitute because she looks like one. Yaakov assumes Yosef is dead because his coat is covered in blood. And Shmuel assumes that the youngest and weakest of all the brothers cannot possibly be the next king of Israel. But maybe the corollary is also true that sometimes having less ability to see things in a physical sense enables people to develop a greater sense of perception. One possible example of this comes from towards the end of Sefer Breshit, when Yaakov himself wishes to bless his grandchildren before he dies. Yosef brings Ephraim and Menashe to Yaakov's bedside. Yaakov at this stage can no longer see. His eyes were heavy with old age. He can no longer see. And yet for some reason, Yaakov switches his hands and places his right hand for the primary bracha upon the younger grandchild. Yosef assumes that his father has made a mistake and tries to correct the positioning of his hands. But Yaakov assures him, Yadati vni yadati. I knew exactly what I was doing. Although it seems that the Torah has told us that Yaakov is blind, in order to explain why Yosef assumes he has made a mistake, this wouldn't actually account for how a blind Yaakov actually does know which grandchild is which and to whom he wishes to give the bracha. Unless his blindness has given him a greater level of perception, a developed internal sense of what's going on around him and what is the right course of action to follow that gives him the strength of vision to give the bracha to the younger grandchild over the elder. In the same way, we might suggest that Leah's difficulty in seeing, as a result maybe of her crying, thrust her into an internal world, an internal world which enabled her to introspect, to understand herself, and to have a vision, a strong vision in non-physical terms of where her life was going. Leah was not going to allow society's vision of her future to overpower her understanding of herself and what she wanted to do with her life. And hence, in contrast to Yaakov, Leah's participation in deception stemmed from an authentic, deep understanding of who she was and her identity, and a sense of full personal responsibility for the course of action she had chosen to affect her future. What can we take from this? A person needs to get to know themselves deeply, fundamentally, and it's probably not going to happen by seeing their reflection in the screen of their telephone. We need to spend quality time alone with ourselves, without distractions, 
And then please God, we too may merit the clarity of vision that was granted to Leah Emmanuel.